Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello. Welcome to the Stugasine podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This week we have a special guest. As you know, Barry Hearn retired as chairman of World Stuka Tour at the World Championship. And uh, taking over is Steve Dawson. I'm delighted that Steve is on the podcast. Welcome, Steve. Yeah, hi, Dave. How you doing? Um, yeah, love your podcast. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, let's see if you feel that way <laughs> in half an hour's time. Listen. Oh, no, you're going to grill me. Ah. <laughs> Listen, we've got a lot to get through, but I thought we'd start just with, with your own background because, um, you know, Barry has been the face of Matchroom, of course, for the last 40 years, but he hasn't run it on his own. There's been a lot of people working with him. You've been one of them. What, what's your background and how did you get involved with Matchroom? Wow, it's a very long time ago. 35 years ago, I joined Barry. I was... Uh, I was a fresh-faced accountant doing the audit for Barry Hearn Limited and Steve Davis's group of companies. Um, and I was kicking around uh, in the office. And that, in the old days, Barry, um, Barry used to play quite a lot of cricket, midweek cricket. And he, he soon found out I, I played a little bit of cricket, only very, very low club, or medium club standard. And he found out, so I used to end up going playing, playing cricket with him and his, uh, and his cronies from the, from the club. And... Uh, so this, this went on for several weeks and uh, after, after I finished playing cricket, I used to go back to the office and finish the audit. And I think in some way, Barry, Barry quite liked that, quite respected the fact that I, you know, I wasn't cheating, you know, my, my employer, my the auditors. So uh, it was quite, and I think, I think it was probably about the third year of the audit or second or third year where I was running the audit. Uh, he just had a word with me and said, uh, would you like a job? And it took me about I'm a nanosecond to decide, uh, yeah, I'd definitely like to do it. And, uh, and that was 35 years ago. I mean, scary stuff. Yeah, and this is the height of the snooker boom. So at that point, Barry is managing Steve Davis and, and a couple of other snooker mm-hmm. players. But this is when snooker really is sort of ruling the TV airwaves in Britain. It must have been a very exciting time to join. And of course, from that, the matchroom empire, as we know it now, was built. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, my role in all that was generally behind the scenes. I, w- I was the one uh, dotting the I's, crossing the T's. In fact, when I joined Barry, he had uh, two game uh, arcades on the coast down in uh, in Kent, and he had a gaming machine business. 
uh, obviously the snooker club at Romford. Um, and I think we managed four snooker players. And that was, that was how we started. Um, I mean, you know, fast forward 35 years, it's now a 250 million turnover business. Uh, so uh, it, there's been this Ben Hover journey and uh, yeah, and, and, and we've learned lessons on the way, I guess. And uh, it's a heritage. As we know, Barry became chairman of Wilson Tour in 2010. You came with him as chief executive. What, what is that role exactly? Because a lot of people hear these terms. I don't really know what people do. So what was your, because you've been there doing that for the last 10, 11 years until becoming chairman. So what, what did that role involve? Yeah, I, I, I've always retained my um, chief executive role for the, the matchroom group all the way through. Um, and because Barry and I in 2010 uh, got involved in the acquisition uh, or the, on the restructuring, uh, I, I was the natural person to go in as CEO for, for, uh, for World Snooker as well. Uh, I mean, the role CEO has lots of different um, meanings and obviously in public companies has a much more formal role. Um, I, I treat it like basically dog's body. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I pick up all the pieces, all the detail and all the rest of it. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, we had uh, a really interesting time actually on the acquisition. It was quite, quite fun. And I think if you, if you recall, they, they put Barry in as, as an interim chairman for three months whilst he came up with this plan and we both worked quite closely in fact, in fact the way Barry and I operate is fairly unique is probably why it's lasted so long is that we we both tend to have different spheres um, but where those where those circles cross we sort of understand where each other are so um, it, it's been a it's, it's been a, a magic partnership and uh, and I just know what he's thinking and 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 he knows I'm usually his conscience so I'm the one that brings him back in line <laughs> Uh, it calls me it calls me a bodyguard sometimes, especially in the wrong places. But uh, um, so yeah, the role of chief executive, I think, is 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 the one that answers to the chairman, basically. Okay, well, of course, now you are the chairman. Um, Snooker's come a long way in that in that last decade. We know that the, the, the circuit's been transformed. Mm. So, really, two questions that sort of tie together. Firstly, sort of how do you see professional snooker at the moment, and what are your immediate priorities taking over as chairman? Well, I mean, the um, obviously the the thing that the all-pervading issue is the is the pandemic, uh, and how what a, a what a horrendous effect it's had on all sports, and we're we're really proud of what we've done in terms of keeping events going, um, especially when you when you bear in mind China has just locked down, uh, they've become very insular and. Uh, they're doing very few. They're doing few domestic events internally, uh, and so that is a that's a big chunk of prize money. Um, so our our priority, uh, and still uh, still remains our priority, is to is to get the calendar back in some kind of shape. Um, and as Barry says, you know, never waste a crisis. Um, so hopefully, when we come out of this, we're going to come out with a stronger calendar, perhaps a more balanced calendar. Um, and, uh, you know, having learned a lot of uh, lessons, I mean, one of the big lessons we've learned, of course, is maybe a good business decision was to engage in very long term broadcast agreements. And I have to say, we've had huge, huge support from our broadcasters and our sponsors. Uh, on occasions, you know, the, the product that we actually sold them when we signed the deals wasn't exactly what it, what it is at the moment behind closed doors. 
um, but we have um, we've we've delivered more in terms of quality, I believe. Um, so um, that's where I think we are right now, and it's going to take a little while. We're not through it yet, so I think we've got another season of of, of transition. Uh, guessing, you know, which territories are going to open up. The other opportunities we're going to have will be moving into mainland uh, Europe. What we heard about Turkish masters, which is a, a, a great opportunity. Um, and we've got a few other ideas there. Uh, obviously trying to keep away from Milton Keynes. <laughs> I'm sure you'd be pleased about that, Dave. Um, so yeah, things, things, are, things are good. I guess the problem, obviously, in the pandemic is, as you just alluded to, you don't know where you can go effectively. Now, China hosted for years a lot of big, big tournaments, big prize money tournaments, was a key market. Is there any sign at the moment when we can go back there? I know the China Open is on the calendar for next season, but I guess you just literally don't know at the moment. I think you know as much as we do. I mean, mm. we are literally on the phone every day to someone or someone else in China trying to get an inside on, on when it's likely to change. As you know, the government controls things with a rod of iron there. I think they're not looking beyond the Olympics at the moment. Um, and uh, it, it's very hard. It's, 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 it's very hard for us to get the, the organisations like the CBSA that we deal with to step out, if you like, and challenge the government and say, hey, why can't we do this? Why can't we do it? It just doesn't work like that out there, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're in we're in the dark as much as anyone else. Although we're we're pushing as much as we can. It's such an important area for us, you know, the players as well. You know, we talk about four million pounds worth of prize money. Mm. It's a significant part of our tour. But we're not alone. All the other all the other sports are in the same same boat. Um, so as you can guarantee, as soon as there's a chink of uh, hope, there we'll be flying in there. And we are obviously talking to other people about, you know, the scenarios when and if. Uh, things lift up. Mm. But, uh, it's not uh, you mentioned Turkey, obviously great news. We're, we're going there. I think a lot of people will be interested to know sort of how you identify places to go to and how it works. I mean, in the case of Turkey, is it that you've been looking at that area and you've seen the growth, obviously, with Eurosport? Mm. Or is it that actually just a promoter comes to you and says, look, I can get the money together to put this on? Or is it a bit of both, maybe? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. I mean, Miles and, and Jason... Um, they, uh, they love an air mile, they, they, they have contacts across the world. And obviously Jason with all the amateur associations have very strong links and they are bashing down those doors every, every day all across the world. I mean, India's another area, Pakistan, you know, where, wherever, wherever there's snooker, a snooker table, they're in there. And obviously the leads come from different, in, in different ways. So we usually, they come via a contact from the association or from a government body. Uh, we're close to the government over here and obviously lots of the international trade people. We go to all the exhibitions. Uh, so we're visible everywhere. And, and it's like fishing, you know, some, you know, if, if, you, if your hook is baited well enough and someone fancies it, it comes in. Uh, there's much, much more you can do than that. So in terms of sort of growth of the circuit, I mean, obviously the pandemic sort of you know, is obviously an issue at the moment. But going forward, 
how much more do you think it can grow? It's already, you know, pretty packed. I mean, Barry said he wanted snooker every day of the year. I'm not sure that's actually that desirable for, for all the players and everybody. But, but you know, in terms of sort of ambitions for growing the tour, how much more do you think it can grow? I mean, there are all these areas that seem really interested, in, certainly in terms of television audiences. But I, I guess also you obviously need the sort of finances to go to these places. Yeah, I mean, we think there's there's a huge potential for globalization everyone uses that word a lot have you noticed mm. or in, internationalization i mean it's true certainly in the uk we're, we're pretty well saturated but that's only a very small part of the world mm. um and, and and in the in an ideal scenario what you do of course is you create problems for yourself so you have you create a situation where you've got new territories wanting bigger and bigger events and what that does is you get competition uh, so, you know, if, if you want an event, you have to pay X, Y, Z. Um, and, and, and there's a sort of natural market uh, uh, result from that. So um, we've got no problem with looking at any new events um, that come in from the uh, across the globe. And uh, there are so many territories. Uh, I mean, America, US is, is, is one market at the moment, surprisingly. Obviously, it's a big place. Um, so we've got a lot of uh, fishing lines out in all those territories and absolutely no problem with fitting them all in uh, one way or another. Excellent. Well, let, let's just talk about a few specific issues. Obviously, Judd Trump had a lot to say before the World Championship, did an interview with the, interview with the Metro. He was, he's a little unsure about the sort of image of snooker looking towards the sort of youth market. I guess the thing with snooker is we have a lot of different markets. We do have older viewers who like maybe the game as it's always been. We have, we're trying to attract new audiences all the time. Um, now, I know you actually, I know you sat down with Judd at the World Championship. That's a private conversation. I'm not expecting you to reveal what was said, but was common ground reached between, between the two of you? Absolutely. I've got a huge amount of respect for, for Judd. I think he's, a, he's an amazing uh, ambassador. I think he's going to be very, very good for the game. Um, and to be honest, I quite like the fact he's thinking about these things, you know, and I think he's... Uh, you know, and even better than that, you know, he, after saying that, he went straight into the BBC studios with Jack Lazowski mm. and did a bloody good job, don't want to say, a really good job. Very impressed. So he's not just talking, he's actually acting. Um, and, and his ideas in relation to, to dress code, yeah, we listen, we listen to everything. Um, I think the feelings, the feelings at this end, and I think uh, at the board level, the things, I mean, there are, there is a formal channel through which all these things go through the WPBSA. So I can't really preempt what's going to be discussed there, but um, I think you've got to remember that it's, it's one of our biggest USPs in, in, internationally. It's that sport that's a little bit different. So, you know, the dress suit sets us apart. And strangely enough, probably where our demographic is its youngest in, in China and the Far East, they like it the most. Mm. Um, they, like, they like the formal wear and the, the fact yeah. that it's sort of a gentleman's game, maybe. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and, you know, ignoring all the other issues about policing uh, dress code and all that sort of stuff, you know, where, where does it end? We don't want ripped jeans and T-shirts and stuff. So, but there's not, you know, having said all that, I'm sure there will be events, as, as with the shootout, where, where we could relax these. But, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's horses for courses. I guess so. I mean, it's a question, how do we attract new audiences in, in the UK? And I'm only talking about Britain. You know, the number of snooker clubs, as you know, has, has 
gone down. A lot of them have shut over the last sort of 10 years or so. So even though the professional game has probably never been more successful, the grassroots is a concern. And yeah. in the UK and everywhere else, we need to get new people, young people into the sport. So I know you, your responsibility is the professional tour, but what can World Snooker do to sort of assist that, do you think? Um, I, I, I'd slightly take issue with you. There obviously has been a real problem with the snook with snooker clubs in this country, and obviously pressure on the high streets in turning you know brownfield sites into into residential developments. But the messages I'm getting from the ground are that things are really are really on the turn. It's like a big lag, if you like, behind the. Obviously, over the last ten years, I think the, the game has been seen more and more, and as, I, I think it's got more and more popular. Um, and and the, the lag, the time it takes for the for the snooker clubs to to meet the demand for new players is probably four or five years behind. So we're we're getting there on that. So I would probably take issue with that. And I, I think the game is in in a much better place. Um, the WPBSA clearly has the obligations and the, and, and the responsibility for the amateur game. Uh, what we can do is provide top quality professional a professional sport that, that, that is, is highly publicized and promoted with good stories, great social media, uh, and the rest has to follow. One point Judd made though, is that we're kind of too stuck in the past. We talk about the old days. The problem is the old days are so great, you know, cause that's where snooker made its name, but obviously he wasn't around then. He was born in 1989. He didn't live through, yeah. through that period. Um, is it time to kind of, I mean, we just had Gods of Snooker, which was fantastic on the BBC. Mm -hmm. I think we all, we all enjoyed it. But is it kind of time now to say, look, we need to look to the future more and maybe stop some of this sort of harking back to the, the so-called good old days? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, it's a different world. Um, just look at the look at Premier League football and where that's gone in the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. It's, it's just dominating the broadcasters. Um, and... You know, I think I think we've done a, a, a really good job in terms of safeguarding our our piece of the pie. Um, all we need now is is more players, more you know, more excellent players deeper down, so that we can get you know we can actually uh, you know we can, we can actually see um, see where that you know where we can take the sport to. Um, Okay, but we we I mean it, it seems and they're great players obviously the Ronnie O'Sullivan's John Higgins Mark Williams great players still at the top of the game in their in their forties now that's probably because they're great players it's probably mm -hmm. no, nothing else than that but you know we talk now about young players people like Jack Lazowski Karen Wilson they're sort of thirty odd you know they're not actually in in <laughs> the sort of in the sort of way we think of snooker players in the past the likes of O'Sullivan when he came through Higgins Stephen Hendry these sort of guys we haven't quite got that at the moment um a lot of people think it might come from china but uh, they haven't necessarily apart from yambing towers when the masters produce sort of world beaters alongside ding so it seems to me that's kind of the the major thing getting new players through and obviously a lot of countries where snooker is popular they don't have the infrastructure so it's hard to see you know unless they come over to the uk which incurs cost how there's going to be sort of an influx of young players yeah sure um Snooker's a tough game, isn't it? That's that's I mean, that's that's the bottom line of it all. You know, the class of '92 players, uh, they are just excellent all-round players, and it takes time. And there's that big change, isn't there, from going from from clubs to 
TV tables and the pressures and the, the, the TV lights uh, and all the PR and press and, you know, all the image stuff that goes with it all. So all distractions. Um, it, it, I think we are where we are, you know, we just, we need, we need a bigger pool of better players to pressure the top players and they need time. And I think we're just in that in that five year window. I think that I think that there are a lot of very good young players out there, but they just need to be exposed to these hardened pros, uh, and and to uh, harden their game in a similar way. I mean, Yang Bingtao, what an amazing performance for the Masters! You, you suddenly suddenly realise that you know, there were moments there we realise where we could be going. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, just a couple of specific sort of issues that have sort of come up and our listeners have sort of suggested as well. One thing that, and we had to talk about this on the podcast the other week, the ranking system. Obviously, it's it's now a money list system, so it's you know whatever you earn, that's your that goes to your ranking. Um, is it a fair system? The reason I ask that is because the top prizes obviously are big, and there's a reason why they're big commercially. If you win a, a to- one tournament over two years, you're probably going to be in the top sixteen. So. You could argue the ranking system rewards winning tournaments, which you know is, is good, but maybe not consistency so much. An example would be Jack Lazowski. He's definitely been one of the best 16 players the last two years. He's been in finals, hasn't won a tournament. He only just got in the top 16 for the Cruise Blue. He was 14. Mm-hmm. So he nearly missed out, even though he was definitely one of the best 16 players on the two-year system. Um, is the money list here to stay, I guess, is the question. Um, look. Certainly, certainly in the short term, we've got a lot of other issues to deal with. Um, what you've got to remember, of course, is it's it's all about um, keeping it simple for the viewing public, for broadcasters, for the audiences. People, it, the money system is simple. It's very straightforward. We know exactly what's what's how much money. I mean, I've I've heard lots of reports about we should go back to a points-based system and all this sort of stuff. Well, it's just not the time for that complexity. We want we want clarity and simplicity, um, and I think to start changing that. Uh, look, there's no one thing for sure is the top players come to the top of the ranking system under this current system. We've got enough to deal with off the table <laughs> to get us through the pandemic. Um, everything. I mean, to, would we not tweak? We probably would tweak some of the prize money, but. But that's something we'll look at internally. But it's only going to be tweaking in the, in the short term. Uh, we are where we are. Don't forget, of course, and what everyone forgets is to transition out of a money-based system to a points-based system is going to cause a huge amount of inequalities as well mm-hmm. and chaos. Um, and whilst I think we'd accept that it's not perfect, the prize money system, it's what we've got. It's good. It's clean. It's clear. The players know where they stand. It makes stories, um, uh, so there are bigger fish in the pond to deal with. Sure, but I, I mean, you're right. It's clear, you know, everyone can see the, the prize money uh, list, and and that goes to to their ranking points. But some of the tournaments, it's it is top heavy. I mean, Gibraltar, the winner got mm. fifty thousand. Semi final is six thousand. So yeah. the, there is a big disparity in some of these tournaments. Yes, there is, and that's maybe where we need to look at some of the tweaking. Um, obviously, don't forget that was part of the uh, series. Um, so it, it, we're trying to incentivize players to play, the top players to play in every event as well. Um, but, you know, commercially, 
it just looks better having a big a big prize money for the first winner it gets us on the back back pages whereas if you know you know the winner's fifteen thousand pounds or whatever you'd suggest it just doesn't doesn't get the the column inches it deserves well, sort of linked to that, um, there's huge pressure on players in the first round of tournaments because you don't get any money apart from, I think, the shootout. You get 250 quid, all the other tournaments. So players lower, lower down who aren't earning much to start with are under massive pressure. Is there an argument that because they turn professional, they deserve something in the first round? That's one of the, the, the fundamental core values that Barry has instilled in all of us on the board and across the whole group here is that... Is, is the, we don't we don't support mediocrity. We we reward excellence, and with that comes no prize money unless you win a match, and that has, that's fundamental. I mean, look at every other sport. So there's no there's no different. You know, if you don't make the cut in golf, you don't get any prize money. Um, it's fundamental in, in our business, and and no one. No player is, is, is owed a living just by qualifying to become a professional. They need to convert that into excellent players. If they can't, unfortunately, it's a tough, tough, tough world. And it's horrible to say. But, you know, if they can't win, they, you know, they, they just can't. They're protected in. They get two years to have a go. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that's, that's our, one of our fundamental philosophies. So it's not, it's not going to change in the short term. Okay, let's move on to, I think, one of the most interesting areas, which is sort of television and streaming, the two connected worlds, but I think they have slightly different audiences. I know some older people who have got no interest in apps, no interest in streaming. They want to watch on the telly or not at all. But there's also young people who don't have televisions. They watch everything these days online. And it seems to me it's a sort of challenge to, to bring those two areas together. Eurosport, who I commentate for, I think have done it quite successfully. They have their linear channels, but they also have the app where there's extra content and extra, they have the world qualifiers on there. Um, but that seems to me like a big area in the next few years um, to making the most of the streaming market while also being sort of uh, centre on television as well. Yeah, sure. It's, it's, it's a big challenge for us and many sports you know how how are we going to consume our sport in five years time uh will the linear broadcasters be as strong will we be cherry picking what we're interested in and just subscribing obviously we've just done match we've just done a huge deal with the zone on our mm. boxing entirely streamed mm. entirely streamed and and subscriber base model as you say you're a sport done a great job on their e-player so um it's something that we need to move with, you know, and, and our, our, uh, our broadcasters, as I say, we've got long-term agreements. I mean, what people don't realise as well, on the BBC, we get huge numbers on the red button, mm. huge numbers. Um, so it, it's, already, it's already in our world. You know, it's not necessarily a, the change has almost happened, if you see what I mean. Yeah, uh, but I think in, in terms of television, um, there's, a, there's still, I think, great value in just stumbling across something, which if you're flicking the channels late at night, you yeah. know, you, you might find the snooker, you might stay with it. Streaming, although, it, you know, you can watch every ball and it's there all day, you're not going to get that. So I suppose the question is, how do the two worlds sort of come together? And do, do you see a, a maybe a, a world where it's more based on the streaming model than, than the broadcast TV model? It's inevitable, I think. I mean, don't forget... Um, there's some, I think it's something like 65% of people watching television are double screening. Mm. So 
the days where you flick through the channels like we all used to do to see what was on are probably over already because they're already flicking and looking at stuff online and and it's going to be social media led isn't it all of a sudden a, a story will come through saying oh ronnie's made a 147 and and you'll be able, you'll be able to click through to the nearest stream so that's probably where we're going to be uh and the attention span of our audience is is relatively short although with snooker people stay a lot longer with us strangely enough but um yeah i mean it's inevitable stream is going to take over from linear i don't i think that's just a given isn't it but in terms of i'm just again talking mainly uk the fact that it's on terrestrial television a lot of sports are not you know a lot of sports don't have live coverage on the bbc and itv snooker does and that is i guess picking up the sort of casual fans who, who are not probably listening to this podcast not hardcore snooker fans but you know we'll watch the world championship we'll watch the masters and some of the others is it important to still have those you know that snooker on on those channels absolutely yeah we're going to be we're going to be uh, maintaining our terrestrial broadcast coverage for as long as we can um we're going to be led by our broadcasters though um and uh you know i mean the world championships what did it 27 percent of the tv audience on on the monday I mean, phenomenal. Four million people. I mean, it's just unheard of. Unheard of figures. So yeah, we we will be we'll be maintaining our agreements with all those and and, uh, and pushing that that audience as well. And in terms of streaming, um, I think you know you've done this deal with Rigor in in China. Um, I think they get every every table basically of every tournament. Is that yeah. something that might be extended to the rest of the world? Because there are sort of diehard snooker fans who would watch anything if they could. You know, if it was available to them. Um, well, yeah, with, within the bounds of all our other agreements. Mm. Um, so we have to be, you know, has to be careful. It's difficult to know what that market is, uh, and on demand. Yeah, certainly we would, uh, we would look at it, but, um, it's, it's a cost and benefit exercise, isn't it? How much does it cost to, to cover every single match in every single territory? But yeah, we'd certainly look at that, but, um, it seems you took you mentioned social media. That seems to be one area where you've been really successful at. Um, it's really been transformed in sort of recent years from maybe not doing that much ten years ago to doing loads and loads of good stuff now. I just wonder though, because obviously the thing about social media, it's a two-way thing. You get to hear other people's opinions. I just wonder to what extent do World <laughs> Snooker sort of take notice of? I mean, obviously there's lots of disparate opinions, but yes. to what extent do actually World Snooker take notice of what what the fans are saying? Absolutely, yeah. We, yeah, that's the world we live in, isn't it? Uh, you have to obviously extreme lose the extremes, all those. But yeah, we we listen. The whole point about it, we have to listen to everyone. That's our that's our audience. I mean, our social media. I think that the, someone said their stats the other day. The number of video views has gone from eighty two million last year to two hundred and fifty million last year before. So. Um, that's a 200% increase. And that's how people are consuming our product. So to not listen to them would be nuts. Well, on that then, because we've had obviously uh, to this podcast, lots of sort of views about various things. One, one sort of issue that came up was Saudi Arabia. Now it's, at the moment, it's, that's almost not on the calendar. It was on the calendar and the pandemic hit. But I guess the question there is the, the person who wrote in wasn't happy Snoop was going there because of the, sure. sort of the human rights record of the country. I guess the question is, are, are, would, the, would there be a place where you wouldn't go um, for reasons related to, to politics? Or is that something that you think shouldn't come into to snooker? Yeah, I don't think it, it, it's an issue for sport at all. This is an issue for the politicians. And 
we would we would uh, take advice from from the government and uh, any, any people on the ground in terms of, in terms of any territory. Um, so it's something we take very seriously. Saudi, we've obviously had um, a good relationship with in relation to boxing. Um, it's a shame that they're they're in a, they're obviously in a, a mess like everyone else in terms of the pandemic. We're hoping to get that one up and running again, um, but it's a, it's a difficult territory to to pin down at the moment. Uh, but yeah, in terms of other territories, obviously we've got to look at the safety of the players and all the rest of it. And we would we would uh, we just like to act responsibly wherever we go. I'm sure that's what you expect me to say. <laughs> well, I, I think it's it's a challenge for all. I mean, snooker is not the only sport going there, obviously, sure. as you said. But um, yeah, I think I think you've answered that, Steve. Um, just as we sort of start to wrap up, we know we've seen what Barry's leadership style has been like over the years. Um, how will yours differ? Everyone's got their own way of doing the job. How, what's your sort of style going to be as chairman? Well, I think the first thing to remember is Barry's still president. Yes. He's still very much involved. Um, and he's a huge and very, very important resource for this sport. And that's not going to change. Um, so from my perspective, I'm going to uh, I'm going to do my th- a few things slightly different. Uh, you see, we've just appointed uh, Simon Brown as chief executive. Um, I, a young lad has worked incredibly hard, especially the last couple of years with the pandemic issues and deserves a chance to impose himself on, on the running of the business and where we take it. Um, we're together producing a new business plan. So we've been in 10 years, we had two, two five-year plans. And I think we're probably coming at the point where there's enough certainty where we can look at uh, the next five years and where we're gonna set targets for. Our KPIs are obviously maximizing prize money um, and uh, so it's um, it, it's quite an it's, it's, a, it's a, going to be a, a new board in that sense Barry will obviously still be there overseeing and telling us when we when we mess up which we will do from time to time because that's what happens um, but um, I'm very very excited about the whole the whole prospect of uh, of another five years and taking the business and, and you know and doubling the size of the sport in, t- in five years. And what can the players do to help? I mean, the obvious answer is play, which they do brilliantly. But what else can they do around that? Um, and could they do more, maybe, to help the promotion of the game? Uh, I have to say, I think the players, and, and, it, and it's, it's a tribute really to our media team. Um, I think they have, uh, I think when, when we came in, it's quite interesting. There was a very much uh, a feeling that the players um we're almost against the authorities. But I think that's completely broken down now because I think I think the players can see that we're working not just on promoting the events, but promoting the individuals. And we need to do, one of the things on our list is, is to do a lot more shoulder programming, a lot more interesting uh, pieces behind the scenes and all the rest of it to build the character. And we talked about Gods of Snooker, that they were, for all their thoughts, they have some great characters out there. It was Dallas with balls, wasn't it? Uh, we, we don't have that, but the game is, 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 is well, we have less of that. So it's not, not right to say we don't have that. But um, there's some real characters out there. We just need to expose them to the public so that people can create an affinity with them. And the players, he's asked the players, the players are actually a lot more joined up than they've ever been. Um, you know, not only are they, and we do appreciate they're under huge pressure 
at events to perform. So I think I think there's a uh, we, we work very well we'll try and try and understand that element. So uh, there's certainly no stick or anything. And uh, I think the players themselves are becoming more educated. I think they understand the importance of, of uh, self-promotion and we can actually be a good source and assistance in that. Uh, are they going to sell tickets? I'd like to think so. That would be nice if they could promote this, stuff, but maybe that's a step too far. But I think, uh, why not? No. Um, and uh, so I think... That, I think we're very lucky with our players. Not only are they very, very skilled, I think they're, they're quite sophisticated. Okay, and finally, you mentioned your sort of the two five-year plans. So five years from now, how do you sort of see professional snooker? It's hard to answer that, but I've asked it, so off you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks. Save the easy ones to <laughs> Um I think it's, 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 it's going to be a, a more global sport. It's got to be a more global sport. And I think that's where all, all our attention is going to be. Um, you know, there are so many markets out there that we've tested and we know, and they know there's the demand and interest. Um, so, uh, in terms of prize money, we, we just want to, we just want to make the sport more relevant in terms of other sports. So eventually, you know, we, we want to get to the, you know, 25, 30 million a year prize money. Uh, and, and that would be hopefully where we'd be in the next five years. Um, other than that, um, yeah, I think that's, that's, uh, that'll do us. Well, 30 million a year. I think, I think a lot of players would be happy with that. Steve, thanks a lot for coming on. We'll uh, follow your progress with great interest and uh, all, all the best. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Cheers, Dave. Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.